Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, episode 289. That intro music was a little bit from a new ghost song. I recently bought the new album. I couldn't resist. Shh, don't tell them. Should be interesting to see if YouTube can detect that eight seconds of copyrighted material. So I was getting ready to record today's episode, and suddenly I hear the name Dinesh D'Souza mentioned on the news. Turns out Trump just granted him a pardon. And if you're not familiar, Dinesh D'Souza is a conservative political commentator, a Christian apologist, and possibly the smarmiest creature on the face of the earth. If you're an atheist debate junkie like me, you've probably seen video of him debating the late great Christopher Hitchens and other high-profile atheists. But yeah, D'Souza is definitely one of those infuriatingly condescending, holier-than-thou types. And there have been a couple of scandals surrounding him. Back in 2012, he had to resign from his position as president of King's College after being caught having uh, an extramarital affair. I believe his excuse was that supposedly he and his wife were separated and he was engaged to the woman he was having an affair with, who was also married. Is that even possible? Can you be engaged to someone while still married to someone else? I don't know. Either way, definitely doesn't sound in keeping with traditional Christian family values. Then he was also entangled in some kind of financial scandal. It had something to do with campaign fraud, I believe. And I think that's what Trump's pardon pertains to. Let's see. I'll read a bit from a CNN article here. And this is kind of interesting because it focuses on Ted Cruz's role in getting D'Souza the pardon. Okay, and so this is dated Friday, June 1st. So uh, today, as I'm recording this, uh, How Ted Cruz Helped Get Dinesh D'Souza His Presidential Pardon, and it's by Lauren Fox. Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz played a key role in convincing President Donald Trump to pardon Dinesh D'Souza, a well-known conservative filmmaker and writer who pleaded guilty to making illegal campaign donations in 2014. According to D'Souza, it was Cruz who raised the issue with Trump and made D'Souza's pardoning a priority. D'Souza told CNN in a phone interview Friday that roughly a month ago, he and his wife Debbie met with Ted and Heidi Cruz for dinner at the Cruz's home. That must have been a horror show. Anyway, their home in Houston. It was at the dinner that the issue came up, and according to D'Souza, Cruz made it clear that he wanted to help D'Souza be pardoned. Ted Cruz said he had a strong conviction that I had been treated badly and unfairly and was determined to raise the issue with President Trump about me getting a pardon, D'Souza said. After Cruz spoke to Trump about the issue, D'Souza said that Cruz called him and told him that the issue had been raised and Trump seemed receptive. But Cruz cautioned D'Souza that the process was not guaranteed and that there was a long review process still ahead. Trump had told reporters Thursday that no one had asked him to pardon D'Souza. Thursday, Cruz celebrated the tweet, Bravo, at real Donald Trump. Dinesh was the subject of a political prosecution brazenly targeted by the Obama administration because of his political views, and he's a powerful voice for freedom, system systematically dismantling the lies of the left, which is why they hate it. Get fucked. <laughs> I, I don't know, I'm just uh, very low tolerance for bullshit tonight for some reason. I was about to say something else I'd probably regret. It involved the characters in this story who I have no love for forming some kind of ass-eating centipede and rolling off a cliff. 
<clears throat> well, I guess I kind of said it. Stay classy, weak in doubt. Now I'm talking about myself and my show in the third person. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so this next one is a story that good friend Crocoduck brought to my attention. It involves New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman. I really like Bart Ehrman, and it's been a while since I've mentioned him on the show. So the way that Bart Ehrman fits into the story is a while back, I, I actually think it's been several years now, uh, he debated a man by the name Daniel B. Wallace, a Christian apologist. I believe he's the senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And the debate centered around the question of whether or not the original New Testament manuscripts are lost to us or not. And so, yeah, Wallace is kind of a defender of the faith, and Ehrman started off very religious, but he says it was actually, at least in part, his academic study of New Testament texts, along with other things like the problem of evil or theodicy, that eventually turned him agnostic. So as I was saying, the two of them were debating, and from what I can see online here, it was actually back in 2012. And they were kind of locking horns or butting heads over the age of the earliest New Testament manuscripts. Because as Bart likes to emphasize, we're dealing with fragments and copies of copies of copies, scribal errors, translations, um, intentional changes and interpolations. So it's not like we have some perfect first century collection of all the separate writings that would eventually become the New Testament. And I think when at least working within his wheelhouse, I won't bring up his debate with Robert M. Price, that's a whole nother episode, Part Ehrman is a really objective and conscientious scholar with rather mainstream academic views on things like the dating of texts, etc. And according to Ehrman, the earliest extant copy we have of any New Testament text is a fragment called P52, a small scrap of papyrus about the size of a credit card with some lines from the Gospel of John on it. Uh, John 18 specifically, I think. And that dates back to the second century, and I think as of now, the scholarly consensus is that it might actually be from later into the second century than was previously thought. And I believe Ehrman says the earliest complete manuscript dates back to the third century. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about that. In contrast, Wallace says something about there being 12 second century manuscripts and goes on to say that number could go up as high as 18 once some associates of his publish a book that was supposedly in the works at the time. So this is the crux of the controversy. Wallace claimed that he was privy to these bombshell developments, including the discovery of a first century fragment of the Gospel of Mark, and when the book about said discoveries is published a year from the time of the debate they were having, keep in mind this was once again 2012, I believe, that it's going to drastically change New Testament scholarship. And uh, here's the clip. Of course, to demand a first century copy of Mark goes far beyond what is demanded for any other ancient literature. However, in the last few months, several very early fragments of the New Testament have been discovered. These will be published by an international scholarly publishing house in a book one year from now. By way of background, prior to this book, I mentioned that we knew of as many as a dozen second century manuscripts from the New Testament in the, in the, that were in the second century. Once the book is published, the numbers will change dramatically. As many as 18 New Testament manuscripts from the second century. Among the finds was also a fragment of Luke 
that is from the early second century. It thus rivals P52, that fragment that Mark showed you, the manuscript traditionally considered to be the oldest New Testament manuscript known to exist. And yet this new Luke fragment is not the oldest New Testament manuscript. The oldest manuscript of the New Testament is now a fragment from Mark's Gospel that is from the first century. How accurate is the dating? Well, my source is a papyrologist who worked on this manuscript, a man whose reputation is unimpeachable. Many consider him to be the best papyrologist on the planet. His reputation is on the line with this dating, and he knows it, but he is certain that this manuscript was from the first century. This papyrus fragment, just like the other new discoveries that we are preparing for uh, publication, strongly confirms what most scholars have already said is the original text. Well, in conclusion, is the original New Testament lost, or is it found somewhere among the manuscripts? The evidence I have presented indicates that we have it in the manuscripts today. Shit, their recording quality is worse than mine. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, and later during a kind of Q&A, I think, uh, section, Bart kind of good-naturedly inquires about the claimed discovery, but doesn't quite seem to be buying it. But, I mean, if we, if we discovered a lot of manuscripts uh, from the first century, then uh, things have changed quite drastically. They, they wouldn't change with respect to the theoretical problems of whether we can talk about the original text. But if we, if we had tons and tons of manuscripts from the first century, obviously, we would, precisely what we don't know now, we could know then. And while I'm on this, why don't I ask Dan about this first century manuscript you've done, because I, this is the first I've heard of it. Can you say something about uh, what, what its extent is, uh, and who the paleographer is, who's dated it, and whether anybody has corroborated the dating? I'm afraid I can't tell you those things. And the reason is because this whole project is rather hush-hush right now until the publisher comes out a year from now. I can tell you the publisher is E.J. Grill. And so it's a reputable publisher, and I've been sworn to secrecy on the rest of that. Uh -huh. But yes, the dating has been corroborated. Okay. I, I, I believe you. I'm not so sure we need to have tons and tons of these first century manuscripts. The very fact that we have one. Well, I don't know that we have one. I mean, I haven't seen it. Okay, let's, let's wait here. We'll talk about this next February. Okay, good. But, um, yeah, sure. Hush, hush. It looks like Bart was right to be skeptical because, as it turns out, the claim, at least regarding the discovery of a first century Markin fragment, is Markin a real adjective? I feel like it is. I think I've heard it before and it makes me sound uh, highfalutin to use it. <laughs> the claim that there was a first century uh, fragment of the Gospel of Mark was false. Um, took him long enough, it's now 2018, but Wallace recently broke his silence and confirmed as much. And I think this is from May 23rd, and this is uh, an article by uh, Wallace himself. There's been a flurry of announcements and comments on the internet about the first century Mark fragment, FCM, ever since Elijah Hickson posted a blog on evangelical textual criticism this morning. As many know, I signed a non-disclosure agreement about this manuscript in 2012, sometime after I made an announcement about it in my third debate with Bart Ehrman at North Carolina, Chapel Hill, February 1st, 2012. 
I was told in the non-disclosure agreement not to speak about when it would be published, or whether it even exists. The termination of this agreement would come when it was published. Consequently, I am now free to speak about it. Confirmation. The first thing to mention is that, yes, Oxy Reinkiss or Ozzy Reinkiss Papyrus 5345, and I'm sure I am butchering that, and that can be Wallace's revenge on me. Uh, for <laughs> for kind of ribbing him by covering this on the show. Um, published in the Oxy Reinkiss Papyri, Volume 83, 2018, is the same manuscript that I spoke about in the debate and blogged about afterward. In that volume, the editors date it to the 2nd or 3rd century. And this now is what has created quite a stir. Apology. In my debate with Bart, I mentioned that I had it on good authority that this was definitely a first-century fragment of Mark. A representative for who I understood was the owner of FCM urged me to make the announcement at the debate, which they realized would make this go viral. However, the information I received and was assured to have been vetted was incorrect. It was my fault for being naive enough to trust that the data I got was unquestionable as it was presented to me. So I must first apologize to Bart Ehrman and to everyone else for giving misleading information about this discovery. So there you have it. I was speaking with Crocoduck about it, and we agreed that it was pretty irresponsible for a scholar to make such an announcement in the middle of a debate without having verified the claim for himself. And I do think it's good that he eventually, you know, came forward and publicly admitted the claim was false and offered an apology, better late than never, I guess. It's hard for me to feel sorry for him. He comes across as kind of smug and condescending, and he seems so confident in his claim at the time. Okay, so I have to say that I really enjoyed that kind of off-topic segment I did last week where I gave my analysis of that childish... Gambino video, and it actually got me thinking, well, maybe I should make this a regular thing. I'll have a kind of quote-unquote off-topic segment at the end of the show where I discuss something that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with religion or atheism. I have to admit, I did feel a little daunted or crestfallen when I saw that. Uh, as of today, I think the, the YouTube version of that episode where I discussed the Childish Gambino video. Uh, I think it only has 26 views on YouTube. I'm like, what the... It's so hard to predict how well a YouTube video is going to perform. Something like this, where, you know, Childish Gambino is huge. Like I was saying that episode, I personally am not really big on rap or anything, but I like just doing something different. And I actually found myself enjoying the video. And I also liked that it got a friend and listener of the show involved, too. I liked that a friend and listener made a request for a segment or a show topic. And I was able to fulfill that. I, I like interacting with you guys. And I like when you guys are kind of part of the show. But yeah, Childish Gambino is so big that I would think just his name alone would garner a significant number of views. But no, I think that's the poorest performing video that I've uploaded to YouTube in a while. Um, some of my videos will get as little as maybe 40 or 50 or 60 views. And then other ones, like, remember I recently 
did a video on that Allison Mack sex cult scandal, that Nixium thing. And that blew up. I mean, relatively speaking, for me at least, I think within the first couple of days, that thing had well over a thousand views. Um, Then I release a Childish Gambino video. It's like 26 views. And then I have other things like, um, like I think the surprisingly to me, because people seem to like the little documentary episodes. And because I just really focus on the history, I feel like those have a broader appeal. You don't have to be an atheist to enjoy them. And those usually perform pretty well. I think the Valentine's episode did pretty poorly on YouTube as well. But then my St. Patrick's Day video has, I think, over 30,000 views. My Krampus video probably has somewhere around 20,000 views or more. Uh, So yeah, it's still a mystery to me. I I never know how a video is going to perform on YouTube. Uh, And I don't know what you guys think about this idea of, you know, every week maybe doing one off-topic subject. Uh, Give me feedback if you feel strongly about it one way or another, if you have any ideas. But I was thinking this week I could discuss this uh, recent scandal with Roseanne Barr. Not actually discuss it with Roseanne Barr, but the scandal is has to do with Roseanne Barr. You know what I mean. Now, that would be good for views or ratings if I could get Roseanne on the Weekend Out podcast. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, gotta try to uh, compose myself here. Okay, so this story is so big online, it's just a deluge of search results. I'm even, I'm have, it's constantly being updated, so I'm having trouble finding the original tweet here. Um, but anyway, Roseanne Barr, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, and I can remember growing up watching uh, Roseanne's original show. And it was a pretty good show. I remember enjoying it. And uh, Roseanne Barr, I thought, was a pretty funny comedian back in the day, too. And she kind of, you know, she had this thing where she represented uh, the working class and ordinary people, you know. That's who she kind of appealed to. Uh, it's no secret that she's a Trump supporter. And uh, in the wake of the election, I think, you know, her career kind of got a boost. Why the hell she supports Trump, I don't know. I can't figure it out. She has a lot of kind of wacky beliefs. She tweets a lot of things having to do with fringe conspiracy theories, etc., like Pizzagate. Um, then there's that uh, Parkland shooting survivor, uh, the student activist, David Hogue. Is it Hogg or Hogue? David Hogue, I think it is. Uh, he was at a rally and, you know, it looked like he was really getting into it and he kind of raised his fist in the air, like a kind of power, a solidarity kind of sign. And I think someone had doctored it to, to make it look like he was doing like a Zig Heil or whatever. And Roseanne had even tweeted something about David Hogue doing a uh, Nazi salute or whatever. So she's known for believing and tweeting, uh, some pretty nutty stuff. And so you guys probably know who Valerie Jarrett is. I believe she served as the senior advisor to uh, Barack Obama. And uh, recently, yeah, so Roseanne tweeted something about, uh, and I don't think it's the type of thing where I even have to go back and find the original tweet. I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, so it's not verbatim. But everyone's probably heard about this by now, so so you'll know what I'm talking about. She said something about, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ 
Valerie Jarrett or whatever. So basically, I don't know what the hell she was trying to say. Was she saying Valerie Jarrett is a terrorist? Uh, she's an ape. She's both. Well, I guess she's half. That's a lot of people have made the uh, the factually true statement that yes, we are ape. Human beings are apes. Homo sapiens sapien. Uh, <laughs> we're we're members of the great ape family. So if you're a human and someone calls you an ape, they're technically correct. But we know what the issue is here. There's a long racist history of people comparing African Americans or African people in general to apes, trying to insinuate that they're subhuman, not as evolved as whites or something like that. So probably one of the most incendiary things you can do is to compare a black person to an ape, you know. Uh, and ethics aside, just from a Machiavellian perspective, if you're a high-profile individual and you want to hold on to your status and your success, your current job, TV show, or whatever, probably good not to publicly compare a person of color to an ape. I, I think that... <laughs> I think that's uh, that, that's probably safe to say. And once again, yes, technically we all are apes, but uh, we know the racially charged history of uh, people trying to caricature blacks as apes. And so Roseanne would go on to claim that she didn't know that Valerie Jarrett was black uh, and that she made the comment, well, she her brain was kind of addled on Ambien. And it's funny because I guess then the maker of Ambien tweeted something like, racism is not one of the known side effects of Ambien or, or whatever. Um, yeah, so I don't know. On the one hand, she's saying she didn't know that Valerie Jarrett was black. On the other hand, she's saying it was wrong what she said. Uh, don't defend her. And she said it because she wasn't in her right mind and she was on Ambien. So what the truth is, only she knows. Some people have tried to defend her saying, well, you can compare someone to an ape without it being racist. Some people have even tried to say that, oh, Valerie Jarrett really does look like a, uh, a character from Planet of the Apes or whatever. And I think actually, uh, you know, I'm a fan of the Drunken Peasants. And I was watching them last night the night before. And surprisingly, Ben, one of the hosts of the Drunken Peasants, who I actually usually agree with, tried to make that point. And I'm thinking to myself, no, she, she does, you're either being intellectually dishonest or you're out of your mind. She she, she doesn't look like uh, an extra or one of the characters from, <laughs> from one of the Planet of the Apes movies, you know? Um, she does have her own distinctive look. Like if, if you saw her for the first time, you might not, you very well might not have any idea that she was... Uh, african-american how much she actually is what percentage doesn't really matter i don't know but um i could see someone maybe thinking that she might be uh, i don't know what it's almost like a rorschach test what uh <laughs> what ethnicity you think valerie jarrett was if you didn't know when you were looking at her yeah but only roseanne knows what was in her mind for sure because of all the wacky things she's said all the crazy extreme conspiracy theories she's latched on to and the fact that she kind of identifies with 
I guess you could call the far right to some degree. I won't say the alt-right. I'll say the alt-light, perhaps, um, with the Trumpers and everything, that I wouldn't have trouble believing that she may actually be racist. That's definitely one possibility. And on the other hand, could she have really have been all goofed out on Ambien or some other medication or drug and um, just ended up issuing this bizarre tweet where, uh, at least in her mind, she wasn't using the word ape in a racist context. She really didn't know Valerie Jarrett was black or at least part black. And she just thought there was some uncanny resemblance between Valerie Jarrett and uh, a Planet of the Apes character. I guess that's technically a possibility, too. Only she knows what's in her heart and head, for sure, you know. Uh, But to get back to the point I made earlier, both ethically and just practically speaking, from a cold-calculating Machiavellian sense, in your best interest... (laughs) <laughs> don't tweet stuff about people looking like apes or whatever, especially if they're people of color um, because of the history there is with that kind of thing. Uh, definitely not good for one's career. I guess her new show, that Roseanne reboot, was doing really well. But ABC was like, uh-uh, you know, they cut her out like a tumor once she said that crap. They want to nip that controversy in the bud. So her show's gone. Um... I don't know how much her fellow actors, cast members, were really relying on that work. I think some of them may have been out of work for a while. We haven't seen their faces that much of late, you know. And so they they may have needed that work, and now, you know, they lost that gig. Um, And then we can get into that thing. Okay, does someone deserve to lose their job if they say something offensive distasteful, bigoted, or that can be construed that way. Um, I guess you could say in a free country, you know, the employer's free to let you go if they find your behavior offensive. I guess, I, I'm not a, a lawyer. I don't know what the exact logistics are. Um, and if someone else wants to hire her, despite or because of her, <laughs> her views, they're free to do that as well. But I guess the thing is, like, uh, people often say, we do have freedom of speech, but there's consequences. You can say whatever you want, virtually, but there are limits. You know, like the old cliche or hackneyed example of yelling fire in a crowded movie theater or whatever. But for the most part, you can say whatever you want. But you have to be prepared for the backlash and, you know, the effect that your own words may have on how people see you, you know? Um, yeah, so it's kind of wild. I mean, I don't really have much more to say about it, and I don't want to ramble too long, so I guess with that, I'll call it quits. All right, thanks, everyone. You guys know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. Uh, if you want to help the show out monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or you can go to patreon.com and help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month and stop anytime you want. And speaking of Patreon, I want to apologize to my patrons for not releasing any uh, 
bonus content recently. Things have been kind of uh, crazy. I apologize. And also, I knew I had one neurotic correction I wanted to make. I think last week I experienced a slip of the tongue, and I accidentally said, uh, instead of asterisk, I said asterisk. Asterisk. I don't know. Um, ah, this is the type of thing a normal person with a healthy brain won't apologize for, but, you know, I'm, I'm, once again, I'm neurotic. But, all right, thanks, guys. So, uh... Uh, please forgive my uh, my obsession with minutia. Uh, until next week. All right, brothers and sisters. Bye.